We look at the world around us today and muse about how weird things seem to be. We say things like, we live in strange times, and this is the new normal. But in reality, things have always been weird. Some eras were less so, and others were, well, considerably more so. One such time was around the 1930s. The world had just begun recovering from World War I, and, humans being humans, we immediately started another war. As all-encompassing as World War II was, that is really just the backdrop for a lot of developments that shaped our modern age. Radio communication had become mainstream. The War of the Worlds gave its infamous broadcast. Pulp magazines introduced us to a new genre of writing called science fiction, known as science fantasy at the time. Authors such as Robert Howard, H.P. Lovecraft, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, Ursula K. Le Guin, and J.R.R. Tolkien were making great strides. Secretly, atomic testing had begun, and the Foo Fighters, the first term for UFOs, were being reported by military pilots. Nikola Tesla was experimenting with free electricity and, secretly, a death ray. The mystical secret society called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn had splintered into several other groups, led by noted individuals such as William Butler Yeats and Arthur E. Waite. Yes, the namesake of the Rider Waite tarot deck. A British occultist and former Golden Dawn member dubbed himself the Antichrist and formed his own belief system called Thelema. And finally, in the weirdness that was the turn-of-the-century California, a young scientist named Jack Parsons began testing rocket fuel by day and conducting salacious black magic rituals by night, all while working as an on-again, off-again contractor for the U.S. military. Needless to say, Parsons led an interesting life, which is why he's the subject of today's book, Sex and Rockets, The Occult World of Jack Parsons. I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Welcome back, goblins! Tonight, we are taking a wild ride through modern history. How exactly would one describe the scientist Jack Parsons? Imagine Howard Stark, Iron Man's father, became Sorcerer Supreme after World War II, and then had it all taken away from him right as he reached the peak of his abilities. As fantastical as that sounds, that's kind of what the life of Jack Parsons was actually like, only with more movie stars and explosions. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The man known today as Jack Parsons had many names throughout his life. His scientific associates generally called him John Parsons. His magical name was Freighter Tupan, or Freighter 210 for short, which was based on the numerology of the name Tupan, but the two sound suspiciously similar, so I almost wonder if it wasn't to cover someone's gaffe. But really, this man's name was Marvel Whiteside Parsons. He was born in Los Angeles, California in 1914. Parsons' father, 
also named Marvel, was caught having an affair the same year that Jack was born. Jack's mother did something utterly unthinkable in 1914, and she divorced her husband. Or did she? We'll get to that a little bit later. This is where the name John actually comes into play. Apparently, Mom was so appalled by her ex-husband's actions that she ceased using her son's birth name, instead calling him John. Later in life, close friends and family began referring to her subject as Jack. I'm not exactly sure why, but it seemed to stick. Frankly, it's hard to determine which name he preferred since he seemed to respond to all of them equally. Oddly enough, Ruth, Jack's mother, never changed Jack's name officially, nor did she change their surnames, so there is still some question whether Marvel and Ruth were officially divorced, or if the two simply remained separated. There seems to be quite a bit of confusion about what happened to Marvel after Ruth left him, but it looks as if he may have joined the army and eventually became known as Captain Marvel. No joke, that was his real nickname. Later on, Ruth was listed as a widow in the census, but Marvel retired from active duty several years after that listing, so it seems that there may have been some shenanigans going on. No one is really sure. So yeah, Jack had a lot of names and a lot of drama from the moment he was born. And really, this seems to be the theme that followed him throughout his entire life. Jack and Ruth lived with Ruth's parents, and it seems that they all had contributed to a deep-seated hatred for Jack's father. This culminated in a self-diagnosed Oedipus complex in Jack, as he admitted in his later writings. He also says that he invoked Satan at the age of 13, an event that seems to have made quite the impression on young Jack, who says that he was cowering in fear when Satan actually appeared. Again, these are his words, not mine. Later that same year, Jack found himself the target of a bully's attention, and another young man, Edward Foreman, intervened. They became close friends and bonded over the shared love of the pioneering sci-fi magazine Amazing Stories. When Jack was 16, something happened that he later referred to as a magical fiasco. What this event actually was is still unclear, but that same year, Jack's grandfather died, and he seems to correlate the two events. After his grandfather's passing, it seems that Jack spent the rest of his life trying to find someone to fill the father figure role. When Jack turned 17, he got a job at the Hercules Powder Company, which was an explosives manufacturing plant. This was a fortuitous job for Jack, considering his hobby of experimenting with backyard rocketry. Now these weren't the little cardboard tube model rockets that you find in hobby shops today. No, these were hand-built rockets using chemicals and binding agents that Parsons and his friend Foreman mixed themselves. In fact, one of their notable experiments used black powder, aluminum oxide, and a glue to create a chemical engine. Now, it's unclear the type of glue that they used because at the time, adhesives were undergoing a great change. It's most likely that it was still a gelatin-based glue, but it could have been an early version of rubber cement. Based on the time period, it's hard to say for sure, 
and it's not specifically recorded in this book. Either way, based on what we know about explosives and rocketry today, this just sounds like an accident waiting to happen. Jumping forward a few years, Jack met and married his first wife, Helen, when he was in his early 20s. That same year, he and Foreman attended a lecture at the California Technical Institute on rocketry, which concluded with the speculative stratospheric passenger carriers, which most of us know by the common name, rocket ships. Not only did this rekindle their love of rocketry, but it gave them a foothold in Caltech. With connections made from attending this lecture, Parsons and his colleagues were giving lease of three acres of land known as Arroyo Seco, upon which to conduct their experiments. They used this area to test a variety of liquid and powder rocket engines, but few yielded any significant results. They were later given a lab on campus to test their works, much to the chagrin of their neighbors. Apparently, it never occurred to school officials that rocketry is loud and prone to explosions. In one of their first experiments, the rocket motor exploded and covered the entire room in chemicals, which caused a lot of the expensive equipment to rapidly rust. Neighbors gave Parsons and his crew the nickname Suicide Squad, since it seems that they were bound to eventually blow themselves up. The fact that Parsons and Foreman weren't enrolled at the university probably didn't help ease any tensions with their peers. By the time Jack was 23, he was already the local expert on, well, blowing stuff up. Eventually, so much so that the university referred him to the prosecutor's office when they needed help on cases. One specific case may have actually been the impetus for his eventual demise. Without going into too much detail, three police officers were being prosecuted for blowing up a fellow officer's car, with him in it. Parsons created a replica of the suspected pipe bomb for the courtroom, and then proceeded to record that same bomb as it blew up a test car. This, along with his confident testimony, caused the three officers to be convicted rather quickly, and made Parsons into a minor celebrity. Which, I'm sure he absolutely loved that. The guy was a bit of an egomaniac. After his courtroom testimony, various scientific publications began interviewing Parsons and his colleagues on their rocketry experiments. This eventually led to a contract with the military, though not with ordinances, but as a means to propel jets. If all of this wasn't enough craziness, this is about the time that Parsons was also introduced to the world of the occult. It was in a co-worker's personal library that he first encountered the works of Aleister Crowley, the Church of Thelema, and the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO for short. It just so happens that there was an OTO facility nearby, and Parsons soon made himself known to them. There he met someone who would have a major influence on his life, both for good and for ill. Wilfred Talbot Smith was Crowley's representative for the second OTO branch in North America, called the Agape Lodge. The first was in Vancouver and had issues with leadership. As a result, Crowley had Smith start another lodge in California after Smith relocated to the Golden State. Why call it the Agape Lodge? What does Agape even mean? So, 
A lot of what is incorporated into the OTO is a combination of elements from the classical world, or Egypt, Greece, and Rome. Generally, anything from the Bronze and Iron Age Mediterranean. Most of these esoteric groups at the time started out as secret social societies, but when Crowley took over the OTO, he removed a lot of the Masonic symbolism and replaced it instead with classical magical elements. Thus, agape is actually a Greek word for love, which means the facility is called the Love Lodge, which totally doesn't sound at all like a cult. Mm-mm, nope, nope, totally not a cult. According to Parsons, upon meeting Smith for the first time, he felt, quote, an immediate repulsion and attraction to the man. That seems a little overdramatic, but not without its merits. Smith would lead ceremonies at the OTO Lodge, and one ceremony in particular called the Black Mass, in which it was recorded that he had a vehement hatred for God. It is speculated that a lot of his hatred may have actually been the result of his upbringing, specifically as a result of his father, who was part of the clergy back in England. Parsons and Smith quickly became close, quite possibly because of a shared mutual hatred for their own fathers and a combined interest in the metaphysical. Many listeners may have heard of the primary tenet of Thelema, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law as written by Crowley in his famous work, The Book of the Law. But, most people forget the follow-up to that phrase. Love is the law, love under will. Basically, freedom to choose is paramount, governed only by love, which is subservient to the freedom of choice. It's very much a chicken-or-the-egg scenario. Most people think it's a catch-all for do whatever you want, and at times it certainly seems like the OTO's own members interpreted that way. But it's not that simple. Then again, this is all just fanciful language for free will and love, which, again, makes this sound a lot like a cult. There is another aspect of the OTO that Jack was in full favor of, and that was the prohibition against monogamy. It's kind of weird that he would embrace this lifestyle, considering his early childhood and how much his mother hated his father for his infidelity. But Jack took full advantage of it. Jack got around. A lot. It wasn't like it was a one-sided proposition, though. His wife Helen had her share of lovers, too. One of whom was none other than Wilfred Smith. By now, Jack was making really good money as a result of his military contracts and patents, so he decided to share his wealth. Largely, this manifested in his hearty embrace of Thelema, which included frequent, sizable donations to both the Agape Lodge and to Aleister Crowley himself. In fact, there were many conversations between Crowley and Smith in which Jack was discussed as the future leader of the OTO in the U.S., if not Crowley's direct successor. Another outlet for this wealth was that Jack and Helen bought a mansion, which they subdivided into apartments for rent. That in itself seems a little odd, but nothing crazy, right? At least not until you hear the advertisement for the rentals. It was specified that only, quote, 
Bohemians, artists, musicians, atheists, anarchists, or other exotic types need apply for rooms. Any mundane soul would be unceremoniously rejected. Jack would later go on to turn his second-story library into an OTO temple, and eventually host black masses in his own home. With this influx of artistic types, Jack was able to indulge one of his other hobbies, science fiction. This will come into play later on, but this fascination had him hosting meetings in his home where he would later double down and try to coax people into joining the Agape Lodge. While the science fiction meetings may have been a bit wild, they were nothing compared to the OTO rituals, which caused the neighbors to report Jack to the cops on multiple occasions. Rumors had already circulated about Jack being the leader of an underground black magic sex cult, which... Eh, it's not really too far off the mark. In 1942, the police reported to his residence after calls were made about an outdoor ceremony where a naked pregnant woman had jumped through a blazing fire nine times. When the police arrived, they told Parsons that they thought the whole idea was absurd and that they were simply doing their civic duty and following up on the report. Parsons assured them that, as a respected rocket scientist who works for the military, he had a certain reputation to uphold and that they had nothing to worry about. Did the ceremony actually take place as reported? Probably. The Pasadena police that same year received an anonymous letter from someone listed only as a real soldier, saying that Parsons was hosting black magic sex orgies. The cops once again dismissed any charges. Was Parsons hosting black magic sex orgies? I mean, yeah? Unfortunately, it also gets considerably darker. A 16-year-old boy reported to the police that he had been forcibly sodomized by three of Parsons' followers during a black mass ceremony. Again, the police investigated, and it was found that Parsons' cult was an organization dedicated to religious and philosophical speculation, with members such as a Pasadena bank president, doctors, lawyers, and Hollywood actors. Now, we're all a bit more jaded in 2021, but at the time, it was believed that people in such high positions were above reproach, so the investigation was again dropped. Did it really happen? It seems likely. At this point, Parsons' wife, Helen, was getting rather close with Wilford Smith, enough so that she bore him a child in 1944. I'm sure you can predict where this is headed, and you would be correct. Helen eventually left Parsons for Smith. Jack didn't let this phase him, though. He immediately began a relationship with Helen's 17-year-old sister, Betty. Yeah, there is so much wrong with that statement. Jack was a minor celebrity, a high-level government contractor, leader of a cult, and seemed to be untouchable, so it really doesn't surprise me in light of everything else that he had done up to this point. When all of this took place, Crowley himself deemed it necessary to intercede, and he wrote to Smith to chastise him. Now, Crowley wasn't exactly a prudish man himself. 
he was actually known at the time for various perversions that we're not going to get into here, but that knowledge is necessary for this next part. He wrote to Smith saying that he was giving the OTO a bad reputation, one of a slimy sex cult. He further elaborated that, quote, In Vancouver, all I knew of you was that you were running a mother and daughter in a double harness. Since then, one scandal has followed another, end quote. When the leader of a black magic sex cult writes to tell you that you've gone too far, you may have to question your own life choices. Still, Smith wasn't forced out of the order, but he was given direction to seek his own godhood outside of the OTO. Seriously, Crowley wrote a statement that declared Smith to have ascended beyond the teachings of Thelema and that he must seek his own power so that he may be as a god walking on the earth. If there is one surefire way to manipulate Smith, it was to appeal to his ego. With Smith no longer running the Agape Lodge, it meant that Parsons was, not necessarily head of the order, but more like a mascot. Outside of his magical pursuits, Parsons and his friend Foreman had begun to develop a reputation around their offices. While they were now shareholders in a rocketry research corporation, they were better known for causing problems among the pool of secretaries. Notably, because they were sleeping with so many of them, that the women began to fight amongst themselves. In the sci-fi arena, Jack was introduced to L. Ron Hubbard in 1944. They immediately got along swimmingly, which could have been because of their shared interests, women, and spaceships. But it could also be that Hubbard saw Parsons as a convenient mark. Hubbard eventually moved into a trailer outside of Parsons' strange boarding house, but when a room became available, he moved in. Another resident recounted that Hubbard was a charmer who loved to tell stories and spin yarns about his time in the military and his membership in the Explorers Club. Because of his reputation for storytelling, it seems that no one was really ever sure how many of those stories were true, but he was so engaging in the telling of them that he quickly became extremely popular with the ladies. Quote, he was so persuasive and charmingly unscrupulous that within a matter of weeks, he brought the entire house of Parsons down around poor Jack's ears. He did this by the simple expedient of taking over Jack's girl for extended periods of time. Ron was supposedly his best friend, and this was more than Jack was willing to tolerate. End quote. Hubbard's roommate at Parsons' house said, quote, Hubbard came in. He was irresistible to women, swept girls off their feet. There were other girls living there with the guys, and he went through them one by one. Finally, he fastened on to Betty. Parsons was so desperately in love, but could not countenance marriage because of his beliefs. End quote. If this weren't bad enough, Hubbard was married, had children, and was still on active duty in the Navy. By 1945, he was declared unfit for service due to his ulcers, and he went to the hospital to strengthen his disability claim. 
the day after his discharge from the Navy, he applied for pension. He claimed that prior to service, he made $650 a day as a writer and now made nothing as a result of a sprained knee, malaria, and other maladies. What is mind-boggling is that Parsons had become such good friends with Hubbard that he allowed the man to remain in his home and even utilized his services in the performance of rituals. A year later, the trio, Parsons, Hubbard, and Betty, formed a small company called Allied Enterprises. The idea was to purchase boats on the East Coast, sail them through the Panama Canal, and sell them on the West Coast. In the initial $22,000 investment, Hubbard put down $1,100, and Parsons provided the remainder. In 1946, Hubbard took Betty and $10,000 in cash to Miami, Florida, where they purchased three boats. Jack had begun to suspect that Hubbard was cheating him, but after a phone call, he was unfortunately convinced otherwise. Hubbard, on the other hand, had already written to the chief of Navy personnel to get permission to sail for South America and China. Parsons quickly began to feel uneasy about the whole situation, so he went to Florida himself, where he discovered the boats. He waited and eventually got word that one of the three had set sail. Hubbard and Betty had fled. They didn't get far, though. A tropical storm struck them and caused massive damage, necessitating their rescue from the Coast Guard. Betty described their situation as, quote, desperate. Upon their return to Miami, Parsons sued his own company, Allied Enterprises, and won in a surprisingly fast court case. He was given possession of two of the three boats, court fees paid for by Hubbard, and the company was summarily dissolved. Hubbard and Betty left, and eventually were married, despite Hubbard still being married to his previous wife, and the two went on to found Scientology. Parsons returned to California a broken man. He had already sold his shares in the Rocketry Research Company to fund Allied Enterprises. Now, he began working various jobs just to get by. He resigned from the OTO in a letter directly to Crowley, saying very little other than it was his will to do so, referencing the primary tenant of Thelma. Parsons eventually married and began to sell bootleg explosives. He wrote several publications on magical workings and continued performing ritual magic. He was also under investigation by the FBI, not for his illicit explosives trade, but for possible communist ties thanks to his former renters. On an early June morning, an explosion rocked Parsons' home, followed immediately by a second explosion. When his neighbors came to his rescue, they pulled a mangled Parsons from beneath an old-fashioned wash tub. His right arm was missing. His other arm and both legs were shattered, and a portion of his face was missing. He was conscious and was taken to the hospital by ambulance, where he died 37 minutes later. His final words were, I wasn't done. Upon hearing of her son's death, Ruth, took a massive quantity of sleeping pills along with a generous portion of alcohol. 
she followed her son in death only three hours after his demise. When the police went to investigate, they quickly had to call in the bomb squad to help determine the safety of the area. It seems that while Parsons was conscious of safety when handling and mixing explosive chemicals, he was rather cavalier in his storage of them, especially those that he was manufacturing illegally. The investigation determined that he was mixing a highly unstable chemical blend, turned, fumbled the canister, and lunged to retrieve it when it struck the floor and detonated. While this is the official report, Parsons' associate said that he never would have made such a mistake due to his exacting and overly cautious nature. Adding to more suspicion, a large amount of explosive residue was found in his trash can. Enough that, should it have detonated, it would have killed the trash man who picked it up and destroyed the truck into which it was tossed. Another careless mistake that seemed out of character. Parsons wasn't exactly in his right mind at this stage of his life, though. He apparently had a drug problem, and there were even used morphine syringes found in the rubble of the explosion. He was previously investigated for espionage by the U.S. government and was preparing to go on vacation in Mexico where it was presumed that he was going to help them open a new explosives plant. He was even reported to have been formulating an explosive more powerful than any chemical explosive in use at the time. If even half of this is true, it's enough to cause a cautious man to fumble. No matter what caused the explosion, Marvel Jack Whiteside Parsons died on June 17, 1952, at the age of 37. That was one crazy story. At times, it wasn't the easiest to read. I left out a bunch of information, most of it technical details about his rocketry research, his personal relationships, and, no exaggeration, where and when he moved homes. If you wanted a book that detailed Parsons' life in minutiae, this book is excellent. If you want an entertaining read, you may want to look at other titles. What did this book do well? First, there are a ton of historic photos, press clippings, magazine covers, and even medical documents. Some parts even transcribed first-hand documentation, making this book excellent for research purposes. Additionally, the author didn't assume that the reader would be knowledgeable of either rocket science or Thelema, so they spent chapters laying out the foundation of each so that later passages could make sense to you as you got to them. That said, some of the chapters were difficult to get through, specifically those that dealt with Parsons' early rocket engine research. Each experiment was laid out in detail only to reveal that they were either unsuccessful or unproductive. There's only so many times you can read, they tried this and it failed, or they tried this instead and it also failed. Would I read this book again? Probably not. Am I glad that I did? Yeah, this was a crazy roller coaster of a story, and I can't believe that all of this happened to a guy who died at the age of 37. It's really hard to speculate what Parsons would have accomplished had he survived the accident. 
at the end of his life, he was going in so many different directions that he could have simply lived a quiet life of retirement or gone on to become a mad scientist somewhere in Mexico. This guy helped shape our modern world and is credited as a founding member of JPL, the Jet Propulsion Lab at the California Institute of Technology. His engines launched jets from aircraft carriers for years. As an aside, the reason I read this book is because I heard about Parsons in passing on another podcast. I researched various titles, and when reading through Amazon reviews, one person said that Sex and Rockets spent too much time focusing on Jack's black magic practices and not enough time on the technical aspects of his rocketry research. At that point, I said, that is the perfect book for me. While it didn't really live up to my expectations, it was still an interesting read. If you want to check it out yourself, I'll post a link in the show notes. The Esoteric Book Club can be found online on Instagram, Facebook, Podchaser, Patreon, and at esotericbookclub.org. Patreon. Yes, Patreon. You hear it after everyone's podcast, blog, YouTube video, TikTok, whatever. The point is that this show is free to consume, and I don't ask you to play the current app game of the week in order to generate revenue. If you like what you hear, and you can afford to do so, Sending a few bucks my way helps with server costs, reading material, and other incidentals necessary to make this show a reality. Then, if you donate enough, you get a shout-out on the show, just like Samantha Shaver. Like I said, every little bit helps, and you can donate as little as $1 a month. Intro and outro music is the song Fight Don't Fight, courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. You can find them on Bandcamp.com or at WeAreHelloJune.com. Until next time, remember, stay weird. Just maybe don't be as weird as Jack Parsons. <laughs>